Right. Good morning, everybody. Well, thank God we can once again come uh, to worship Him. And we're coming to the end of our series through a book of Hebrews on pressing on to maturity. And really, it's the end of this year, the theme of following Jesus. And to the end, it's about pressing to maturity. What does that look like? That is what we will consider today. Let us pray. Lord, we open your word. I ask the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts that we'll see Christ lifted up and you glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Roberta Messner shared. She said, I shoved my way into the living room of the withers and there were about 200 over people there, bargain hunters, attending their estate sale. The withers have passed on and the children are dealing with all that they have left behind. As a teenager, I sold cosmetics in this neighborhood and Mrs. Withers was my favorite customer. Then I made my way up to the attic. It was really warm. And before me, there were bags and bags of unopened and unused cosmetics and Tupperwares. My eyes came to rest on a handwritten invoice. And it was written by myself, my own handwriting. That was the first sale I made to Mrs. Withers. I began to think back about a, long, uh, a summer day long ago. I've walked the whole day without making a single sales. I came to the last home and I pressed the bell, preparing myself to face the familiar rejection. The oak door swung open and I, says, I said, Hi, I'm here to sell cosmetics. And I looked up, I realized it was Mrs. Withers, the bubbly soprano of our church choir. A few months ago when I had to go to a distant city to make a to have a brain surgery. She had given me many exquisite gifts. So she looked at me and she smiled. She says, oh, Roberta, come in, come in. What do you have for me today? I have so many needs. And so I slid into her big sofa, took out all the cosmetic samples and handed her the sales brochure. And she made me feel like the most important person that afternoon. She asked me many questions about the cosmetics and finally she asked, what are you going to do with the earnings? And I said, you know, I want to save up for college to become a registered nurse. But today, really, I feel like I want to buy my mother a birthday gift. Every time she accompanies me for my medical appointment, it's really cold, and so I would like to get her a sweater. And Mrs. Withers replied, that is really considerate of you. That afternoon, everything I recommended to her, she bought two of everything. And today... 30 years later, they are right there before my eyes in the attic, unopened and unused. I was abruptly transported back to that humid and sweaty attic when someone asked me, do you know Hillary Withers? I turned and looked at the lady and said, yes, I used to sell cosmetics to her. But I don't understand why she would buy so many of these cosmetics and Tupperwares and leave them unused and not even give them away. And then the lady said, Actually, she has given a lot of them away. Only the special ones she kept. And here they are today. Then she added, Hillary once told me that she would never turn away a door-to-door salesperson. She said, if I give them money, it does little for their self-respect. But I give them my time. I listen to them. I buy their products. I share with them my love and my prayers. You know, you never know how far a little encouragement will go. And Roberto paused, 
remembering that after she made the first sales to Mrs. Withers, her sales figures soared. That summer, she made enough commission to buy her mother a birthday gift and even have left over for her college fund. She even went on to win several national sales awards and put herself through college, finally becoming a nurse and eventually even getting a PhD. And then she said to the lady, looking at all the, pointing at all the bags of unused and unopened cosmetics, she said, Mrs. Withers must really care for these people. And the lady replied, yes. And she did this without the slightest desire of anyone knowing. Now friends, throughout this series on the book of Hebrews, we say we're pressing on to maturity. But what does maturity look like? Does it mean we have to do something spectacular? We have to bring a lot of people to Christ? We have to be successful as our career so that we can be a good testimony? Or that we meet challenges and we respond with great faith? The book of Hebrews, if you remember, the, the believers are turning away from the faith, going back to Judaism. And so the author writes about the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament and he ends with faith, hope and love. That we need to live up, have acts of love. How do we do that? How do we persevere? Is by having an enduring hope in Christ. And how do you have the enduring hope? By faith. That's why he end, ended the book with faith, hope and love. And today we are looking at chapter 13 on acts of love. In the book of Hebrews, there are five warning passages. And as I said at the beginning of this series, after three years of the pandemic, our lives have changed. But are we like them? Are we in the danger of drifting away in our faith? Has our heart grown cold? Have we lost the appetite for spiritual things, become dull in the spirit, have disbelief towards the Word of God, and even not want to gather together for worship? How do we persevere? By faith, we see the enduring hope in Christ and we live our acts of love. So what does maturity look like? The last chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, will tell us is by showing love in what we do. We will see three loves in Hebrews 13. Love for your neighbour, love for your leaders, and God's love for us. Love for your neighbours, love for your leaders, built on God's love for us. So let's look at chapter 13, verse 1. As he summarizes this whole book, he shows us love towards others. Verse 1, let love of the brethren continue. Why did he use love as a summary? Well, because we know the summary of the law is to love God and love your neighbor, right? And Jesus said in John that a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says, I give you a new commandment to love one another. Wait a minute. It's not new, right? We just said in the Old Testament, the summary of it is to love God and love your neighbor. And so what's new about this commandment is not to love one another, but to love one another as Christ loved us. In the Old Testament, they know that God loves them, but how? Well, in the new, we know God became man to die upon the cross sacrificially for us, and as such, we are to love each other. And it says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How? By spectacular works? By bringing a lot of people to faith? No, it says what? By loving one another as, another as Christ has loved us. And friends, you know, loving other people, loving your neighbour is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. 
It's not that I think about my neighbour, I bake a cake every now and then and bring over. I mean, that's good. That's being a good neighbour. But that's not what it means here to love. Hebrews 13 verse 1 says, love one another. And it goes on to show concretely what it means to have hospitality, empathy, fidelity, and contentment. Verse 2, it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. He was referring to Abraham, who hosted three strangers who turned out to be angels. But the key here, how do you show love? By hospitality to strangers. The word hospitality is philo-xena, as opposed to xenophobic, meaning we discriminate against foreigners. Philo is love, love foreigners. That is what it means to be hospitable. You see, in the Roman inns, there were places of pagan worship and immoralities. And so as Christians, when they travel from town to town, um, you know, the local Christians will open their homes to be hospitable. And that's important. And so the word here is, to love foreigners. I mean, when I first got to the States, I understood this, you know, because you left everything behind, you know nobody there. And when the people there, the church members, they open up their homes, they host you, you know, it's like opening the most private part of your home to, to accept people in. And so I learned now, you know, whenever we have New Year or festivals, to invite people to my home, even though it's really inconvenient, right? Before they come, I have to spend three days or a week cleaning the house, you know. Then after they leave, oh, I still have to clean the house to clean up. So why do you do it? Well, because it is how we show love concretely. So if you ask... Are you somebody who loves your neighbour? Does people know that you're disciples of Christ? How? By being hospitable to foreigners. Secondly, he says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourself also are in the body. He says, remember the prisoners, remember the ill-treated as if you're in prison with them, as if you're ill-treated with them. It's how we deal with the marginalised. Previously, to be hospitable is a bit more passive, right? You just need to clean your house. But you open your home to receive. But this, you need to intentionally go out to the marginalised. To people who cannot repay you. Remember I shared about the Roman system. The entire Roman culture is built on a benefaction system. I only do good for you because I expect something in return. I expect your allegiance. I expect a favour. And so in scripture, it always says, go to those who cannot benefit you, who cannot pay you back. Go to the marginalised. Earlier in my pastor voice, I shared, this past Saturday was the retirement of two of our deacons, Peng Kiong and, and Martin. And somebody, you know, when he's giving, testifying or, uh, for Martin, he said, you know, jokingly, that Martin is like the Holy Spirit. Because he's always, he's invisible but always present. You know, for those of us who know our deacon Martin, he's like that, he's very quiet, right? Even when he stands beside you, you also don't know, you know? And then you turn around, wow, he's serving with the, the migrant workers. You turn the other way, he's serving with the old, old folks home at SNAH. You turn around, he's serving the Alpha. And we see he's a man of little words, but his heart is always with the marginalized. And that, my friends, is an example of loving your neighbors. How well do we love our neighbors? It's not about having warm, fuzzy feelings. Do we host foreigners? Do we reach out to the marginalized? Thirdly, it says, marriage is to be held in honour among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. 
You say, wait a minute. This is about loving your neighbours, right? Why, why, why suddenly you talk about marriage? It's my own business. But you see, a society is built on the foundation of a family. And right in the centre of the family is the marriage. We tear apart the marriage, we tear apart the whole society. And that is why when we look at the Roman Empire, when eventually it was invaded, many historians said it's not simply because militarily they became weaker, but it was because of the centuries of moral decadence. The people would sleep with, with husband and wife only to, to have descendants. Every other needs, they go outside to prostitutes, to slaves, to anybody by law except Roman women. But of course, they still do it, right? And Roman women would sleep around too to gain favours for benefaction. And so this was the Roman family. But scripture is countercultural. It says, keep your marriage bed undefiled. That is how you love your neighbour because your spouse is your closest neighbour. The person you're sleeping with, that's your neighbour. That person's spouse is your neighbour. And so you're breaking this relationship. He reminds his readers that fornicators and adulterers God will judge. What's the difference? Now, adulterers are the people who are married and have extramarital affairs. Fornicators are those, even if you're not married, but you have sexual sins. And since all this, God will judge. So sex is not private. It affects those around us. Likewise, the next point when he makes, he talks about money. He says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Again, in talking about love your neighbour, why does he talk about money and being content? To trust that God will provide for us. Because when we're not content, we covet. You covet your neighbour's things, your neighbour's, what your, your neighbour has. And that's within the Ten Commandments, we see that that is part of loving your neighbours, right? And when we love money, is we find our sense of security and value in the money that we have. But we know, whatever we pursue to give us a sense of security will eventually cause us to be in bondage. The only way we can experience freedom is when we surrender those areas to Christ. So friends, you know, when you look at our bank statement, do we feel better because there are more figures? Do we gain our sense of security and well-being from how much we have? How then do we train to be the other way around, to be content? Or is to learn to give, to be generous, and so loving your neighbour, part of it is being generous to others. And again, I want you to see how countercultural scripture is. The world teaches us that we should be generous with our sex and, be, and treat money as sacred. Meaning you should have as much sex as you want, but when it comes to money, control it. But scripture says the other way. It says be generous with your money, but treat sex as sacred. How do we love our neighbours? How do we use money to be generous to others? And part of learning this is through our tithings. You know, when we tithe, it's a recognition that all we have belongs to God and what we give out of the joy of our hearts is out of faith. It is not the other way around, you know, that we, have, we own everything and what belongs to God, we give back. No, no, no. It's everything belongs to God. We are just stewards. And again, it says we give we see, we give 10% like the Old Testament, but you know, the Old Testament, they give more than 10%, right? 10% give to temple tax. 
10% they give to support the priest. And every three years, they give 10% to support the poor. So annually, they give 23.133%. And on top of that, you know, there are thanksgiving offerings, uh, vow offerings, so they actually give more. So don't say, no, I follow the Old Testament, give 10%. Scripture, New Testament tells us that we give out of the joy of our hearts because we recognize we are just stewards. Once there was this businessman who shared, he gives 70% of everything he, he earns because God has blessed them. And everybody heard it, they were there, was shocked. You know, and he explains, he says, you see, if you make 30,000 a year, you give 10%, that is a sacrifice. But to my wife and I, 70% is not a sacrifice because God has blessed us. So why do we do it? Because we recognize everything we have belongs to God and because we don't want to escalate our lifestyle. Now, first and foremost, I must say, I don't understand what he's saying, okay? I don't belong to that category. But what he said made a lot of sense to me, you know. I asked myself, then how much is enough for me? Have you ever asked the question, how much? Put a figure to it. Don't say that I'm content. Put a figure to it. How much is enough for you? Because that couple made that decision. When he said that I give 70% so that I will not escalate my lifestyle, meaning they know how much is enough. And so friends, when we look at these six verses on loving your neighbour, I repeat, maturity is not doing something spectacular. Maturity in the faith is, Hebrews is tell, telling us, love your, one another as your neighbour. And loving is not some warm, fuzzy feeling. Concretely, it talks about hospitality, empathetic to the marginalised, fidelity to your marriage and other people's marriage, and contentment in what we have. How are we doing as neighbours? And the presupposition to this is that there is a God, there is a Creator, and all these flow from His attributes. You see, for example, we think about sacrificing babies, and you go shock, huh? What's that? They're so evil. You know, but some cultures, they actually sacrifice their children, right? To their gods. So are you saying that they're evil? Are they correct or they're wrong? You say, of course it's wrong. Well, who are you to say they're wrong? It's, it's acceptable in their culture, right? And so unless we have something or someone that transcends both cultures, we have no right to say that they're wrong. And so the presupposition that we must love our neighbours flows out from a, from a God whose nature is of love. And that is why we follow this. Otherwise, it's relative, right? You don't have to do it. And so over the last 30, 40 years, there's this new atheism movement. They are very aggressive on pushing Christianity and for that matter, all other religions to the fringes of Western society. And a few key proponents are people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, talks about how we should protect children in Christian families from the influence of their parents. He ridicules the idea that you need to believe in a God to be moral. But then we look at what happened to the West in the last 20, 30 years in the great secularization. Within 20 and 30 years, now they cannot even define what is a man and a woman. Right? Because gender is now, is now depending on how I feel. And so, even people like Dawkins would then say, he said that, you know, atheism since the Enlightenment has successfully influenced the West because they are built on a foundation of cultural Christianity, on Christian values. But he says now, 
Men and women live their lives under empty heavens and we expect not to be resurrected but to be recycled. And so in his latest book, Outgrowing God, he says whether irrational or not, it does unfortunately seem plausible that if somebody sincerely believes God is watching his every move, he might be more likely to be good. Now he said this begrudgingly, that's why there's so many commas, you know, irrational, unfortunate, but you know, this might happen. And then he says, I must say that I hate that idea. I want to believe that humans are better than that. I would like to believe I'm honest whether anyone is watching or not. I think if people like Dawkins are beginning to rethink some of their ideas about faith and religion, perhaps we as Christ followers need to take God more seriously. Are we loving our neighbours? To be mature is to grow from turn from ourselves to others. All the loving your neighbours is about loving others, about turning towards others from our ego to our arch-ego. Archigos, our champion, the author of our faith, Jesus Christ. So we love towards others. Secondly, it's love towards the leaders. Then he talks, he says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He talks about loving your neighbour and then he turns to the leaders. He says, remember those who led you. Remember what their faith is like. Imitate them. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same. He's unchanged. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. Then he goes on to talk about Jesus in verse 9 to 16, which we'll look at later. And once he finished that, immediately he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. It's not enough just to remember what they are like, imitate their faith here. He goes one step, he says, obey them, submit to them. Now these are words that we don't quite like. But why do we do that? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Because the leaders would stand before God and give an account, and he says, let them, when they give an account, be joyful, not grievous. If they're grievous, it's unprofitable to you. Mean, meaning, if it's, they give an account because they're grievous, it's because the relationship is bad. And when we cannot submit to our leaders, it doesn't benefit us, right? Every time you see this leader, you turn the other way around. Or you say, ah, sien. And then if that person teaches you the word of God, do you think you can receive it? No, of course not. That is why it becomes unprofitable for you spiritually. And if it doesn't come out straight, it comes out crooked. I used to lead a bunch of young people in another church. Uh, they all grew up in church, but they were really bitter about the church. So finally, one day I sat them down and said, Look, what's the issue? You know, why are you so upset with church? Where did the church do wrong? It says, Oh, this thing happened and that thing happened. And I thought, Did they really experience this? So I asked them, Do you all experience this for yourself? They said, No. So, so, so how do you know this thing happened? Oh, we see, their parents, when they're watching TV or eating dinner, will begin to talk about this cell group leader we begin to criticize that leader. And all these young kids, they, they hear, they listen. Now the problem is, after the fact, if the parents, they reconcile, the issue was resolved, now the kids don't know. But they continue to be bitter towards the church. So when we have issues with our spiritual leaders, it becomes unprofitable for us. Now does it mean that we don't say it? No, it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that. Right? We have to ask this issue, is it the truth? 
Or is it just an opinion and preference? Is it just the matter or is it that person? Because many times, even though we talk about the matter, you know, how we feel about this person interferes with how we feel about the issue. And if it's a matter of truth, we speak up. If it's a matter of opinion, we speak up, but yet we also learn to submit. And so you see there's a dual relationship. The author says, obey your leaders, then he says, pray for us. Right? So he is one of the leaders. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all. So in both verse 7 and verse 17, he says, remember your leaders, obey your leaders. Why? Because they imitate Christ. Here, because they have a good conduct. And so you say, but what if my leader has no good conduct? Well, that's why we are Baptists. You see, Baptists, we believe in membership, right? That's a dual relationship. Okay, we don't like to talk about membership these days. It's better just to come and worship and leave. Why commit? These days, you are commitment phobia. You don't want to commit, right? So it's better just to worship. Don't commit to this. Or maybe we have been hurt before and so we just want to worship and keep quiet, but we do not want to commit to this body. But at the same time, when you look at Scripture, there is a relationship of commitment. Paul says, in 1 Timothy, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. The labourer is worthy of his wages. What is this double honour? You pay them. You support them financially. Galatians 6, when he talks about bearing each other's burdens, in verse 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches them. Again, sharing materially, supporting them. Why? No, I don't know. Maybe because the leaders, they, they have financial needs. You know, once someone told a pastor, he says that, you know, every year my family go on vacation. In our budgeting, we will include your family. It means that every time they, they, they spend a certain amount, they will leave a little budget for the pastor's family. Now, how do you think the pastor will feel? I say GDLL, you know, Kantong Liu Lei. Because it's not about the money, it's that you regard them as your family and that is what the church is about. In a marriage, if you do not commit, it will never work. Every time you hit a problem, you run. In a church, if you do not commit, it isn't a church. The church is not this Sunday gathering. This is worship. The church is you and I and while all of us belong to the universal church, Truly born again believers belong to the universal church. We are also called to belong to the local church and hence we talk about membership. We are willing to submit to church discipline. We are willing to call out leaders who are not living God's way but we are committed to each other. That's a community. And so while there are expectations of the people, to the leaders, there are also expectations. First Peter says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. The leaders, they also have expectations of their leaders. And so, you know, I encourage you all to join Oikos. You know, Oikos is 12 weeks. I think most of you in your heart say, hey, nah. you know, because you don't have to attend 12 weeks. Last time, your newcomers class, maybe six lessons. Uh, I encourage you to join Oikos, which is 
not just for our new members. You know, you haven't been there. If you're not going for CE classes, you should go for OI course to understand about the basics of faith and about you know, what our church is about. And you'll be surprised what you do not know. So I encourage you to, to join, to be part of this church family. I shared before, you know, when my wife and I joined QBC, you know, we had to get rebaptized. And by then, I was already a pastor for 10 years. I've immersed a lot of people. But because I was sprinkled when I was baptized, I know, joined QBC, I have to get re-immersed. I remember the, my old pastor who sprinkled me when we left. He says, remember never to get re-baptized again. And I think that's why today when I see him on the street, he don't want to talk to me, you know. No. But we decided to do that. To me, it's not a re-baptism. We decided to be immersed because we felt that God has called us to this body and hence we submit to the authority of the church. Likewise, let us commit to this body of Christ. If you God has called you here, we commit as members and we learn to show love to our leaders. To love your neighbours, to love your leaders. Why? Because it's built on God's love for us. That's why verse 9 16 talk about God's love for us. He says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Since we grow in holiness, not by whether you eat something or you don't eat something, not by food, but by grace. When we understand the gospel, when we understand the whole book of Hebrews, what it's talking about, we have a better covenant, we have a better mediator, we have a greater high priest who himself is the sacrifice. Everything we have covered in the last two months, we understand that we are saved by grace. Not whether you eat something or you don't eat something. And friends, when we understand the concept of grace, then what we have read earlier, verse 1 to 6, to love your neighbours, they are not commandments that we cannot attain to. They constantly condemn us and make us feel guilty. Rather, they become virtues and ideals we pursue as a community in Christ. Meaning we realise we are saved and we are committed to each other to pursue those ideals even though we, we don't attain them and you don't feel bad that, oh yeah, I never opened my house to foreigners. I never go and help the migrants. It's not to man, meant to make us feel guilty, but they are virtues that we want to pursue together because we are committed as a community to follow Christ. Our hearts are strengthened by grace, not by whether we eat certain food or not. And then he says, we have an altar, an altar that is different from the Old Testament altar. The altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. If you follow the Old Testament, you have no right to eat from our new altar. In the Old Testament, verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burnt outside the camp. The idea is after they offer, they go outside the camp and burn. The idea of removing the sin. He says, we have an altar, a new altar. That is Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his blood, suffered outside the gate. Jesus was nailed outside the gate of Jerusalem. It symbolizes removing of the sin to the outside like the Old Testament. But it says this is a new altar that is opened by, um, that is completed by Jesus. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not seek, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. It's a summary to the whole book of Hebrews. When are facing challenges, their faith, they're turning away. Now he's saying what? We suffer with Christ because our hope is not in this world. 
We are looking for a city that would last. And then finally, he says, you know, we still offer sacrifices, but it's different. Through Jesus then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. The, offer, the sacrifice we offer is a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of your lips that give thanks to His name. A heart of gratitude, that is our sacrifice. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Verse 1 to 6, loving your neighbours, doing good and sharing, these are the sacrifices we offer up, not dead animals. And so as we complete, come to the end of the book of Hebrews on this series, pressing on to maturity, the question I ask, what is maturity? It's not about doing something spectacular. It's not about bringing a lot of people to Christ or responding to great faith in when we, we meet challenges which are good and important. Hebrews tells us maturity is knowing good, right from wrong, from the Word of God and then acting out in love. It is in the daily grind, in the mundane and the ordinary that we show little acts of love. That is our pressing on to maturity. And that is why the great reformer Martin Luther says this, Sanctification is hidden in offensively ordinary tasks. Sanctification, growing holiness, maturity is hidden, is not obvious, is in ordinary mundane things that we find offensive. We want to win people to Christ, reach some unreached people group, but you know, we don't like the person in our DG. We want to reach our colleagues for Christ, but do you do good work? Do you start work on time? We want to love our spouses, our parents, but do we do the dishes? Do we change the diapers? We want to love Jesus with all our heart, soul and mind, but do we brittle our tongue and mind what we say? This is what Martin Luther is talking about. Sanctification is hidden in the ordinarily, offensively ordinary task. And in my pastor's voice, I shared what Scott Hubbard said. He said, trusting God with an afternoon's ruined plan trains us to trust Him for greater things. Giving sacrificially with a tight income readies us to do so with a more comfortable one. Unashamedly speaking of Jesus before a neighbour prepares us should the day ever come to speak his name before persecutors. And he ended to say, begin where you are. Do the ordinary things. Give attention to your children. Speak an encouraging word. Store God's word in your heart. Begin where you are. You want to be a mature Christian? Now we'll never be mature. We can only continue to press on to maturity. And the ideal is given to us of how we show love. And how do we do that? Is by in the daily grind, in the things that we do. Or like someone shared with me, you know, that she wants to see God in the garlic, the chili, and the poop. And we may laugh, but these trivial things is what a person needs in this season of her life. And each of us, we have these tasks lay before us, tasks at hand that we need to learn to experience God, to show love. One of my friends on a Facebook posting, she said that she saw the 11th floor uncle carrying bags of groceries and she offered to help, but he said no. Then she said, I reminded him who I was. I said I was that silly lady who lived on the 5th floor who would go out into the rain without an umbrella and because of that, maybe soon I'll get dandruff. And so the uncle laughed. He said he remembered, but he insisted on carrying his own bags. Then he looked at me hesitantly and he asked, do you have time? to read some letters for me. So my friend agreed. He went to her, she went to her, his house. 
He took out a stack of letters from his overstuffed IKEA bag. And over the next 45 minutes, between her broken Mandarin and his excellent memory, they listed out all his medical appointments. And then the uncle said to her, he says, thank you for reading these letters. Usually I won't ask strangers because I don't know if they are safe. But you give me a sense of safety and I hope you don't mind the inconvenience. And she said, she noticed one of the, the last appointment was psychiatry. And she pointed it out. And says the uncle put down the letters and then said to her, he says that, you know, when you are sad, you can comfort yourself. And he did this action, something that he learned in his psychiatric appointment. And my friend said, when this happened, her eyes were filled with tears. She says, I thought about his loneliness and his struggles. You know, many of us struggle like this. And when we are struggling, all we need is someone to come alongside us, someone to show us small acts of love, somebody to listen, someone to point us to God in the mundane things. Friends, what does it mean to be mature? It is to show loving acts in the daily grind. And we have somebody who come alongside of us already in our struggles, and that is Jesus Christ. That when we are wrestling, we are struggling, He comes alongside, He listens to us, He shows us love and points us to salvation. How then do we respond? Sometimes we think, you know, unless we go on vacation, we can, must wait until we go on vacation, then we can enjoy life. But most of the time, we are, only have margins of time. Does it mean we don't enjoy life? Sometimes we think we only we go for a romantic candlelight dinner or walk on the, on the beach, then we have love. But most of the time, we are in between schedules, changing diapers, sending kids to this and that. Does it mean we don't experience love? Likewise, do we not experience God in the mundane? Or we only wait until something spectacular happens or every Sunday that we experience God? And so friends, the pressing on to maturity is to know that life is lived in the margins. Love is experienced in the in-betweens and the divine is found in the mundane. This past Saturday, two of our deacons retired. And those of us who have attended the service, our hearts were so full of blessings. These two gentlemen, Martin and Penkyong, some of us know them, and they are so different in temperaments, in characters, in gifting, and yet in their humility, in their gentleness, in their willingness to be available for God, they have showed us the example of what it means to press on to maturity as a community of people committed to following Jesus. And so that is my challenge to you. Let us pray.